welcome to Season 3 of Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing us to continue to celebrate and support great writing and to serve our community. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our guest today is Melanie Challenger. She researches and writes on natural and environmental history and the relationship of humans to the living world. Her first nonfiction book, On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature, won the Santa Barbara Library's Green Award for Environmental Writing. She was the recipient of a Darwin Now Award for her research in the Canadian Arctic and the International Fellowship with British Antarctic Survey for her work on the history of whaling. More recently, she's focused on environmental philosophy and bioethics and was a visiting scholar at the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and the Humanities and a visiting fellow in the philosophy department of Durham University. Today, we'll be talking about her new book, How to Be Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. Matt Haig says, it is so wise and so well-researched and makes you realize that so much of where we go wrong as a species, socially, psychologically, environmentally, involves forgetting or trying to escape our nature. For those of us familiar with this book, it will come as no surprise that she is also an award-winning poet and librettist. Here's my conversation with Melanie Challenger. So, Melanie, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon to talk about this wonderful book, How to Be Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. Um, And I was thinking probably the best place to start is to lay out, I guess, the central thesis. So, How to Be Animal really came out of the initial question, what does it mean for us to be animals and what follows from that? And as I explored that, what I came across through history, across cultures, is the fact that being an animal is fundamental to a lot of what we value in our lives, whether that be our relationships, our emotional, sensory, perceptual sort of states. But also, and and the things that we take pleasure in, a meal, you know, the sunlight on our faces, the the views of the ocean, these sorts of things, the smell of flowers, the taste of foods, these are all very animal things. And yet we, there's a lot about being an animal uh, or that flows from being an animal that is very frightening to us. That includes our mortality, illness, disease, failure, um, you know, and the, And it creates philosophical and moral problems for us as well. So we do things in the world that we we have the kind of mind that we recognize are unpleasant or, or morally and ethically thorny for us. And we, throughout history, our different societies and cultures have found different kinds of ways of easing that, of, of buffering us from that. And so that's really all of the kind of gnarly territory that I go into in the book. And it, it takes us off in lots of different places. But the core central idea is that in some way, we all do battle with being an animal and yet being an animal is fundamental to us. And so, in, you know, in a large way, what you're, you're, 
sort of trying to tackle here is this notion of human exceptionalism, that we are somehow outside of the world, that we are uh, observers that can look at nature and come up with decisions and understandings that, that nothing else in nature could possibly do, right? Is that is that essentially what you're suggesting is the problem? Sure. So I think there are, there are two parts to this book. There's a really dominant part, which is when I talked about, you know, the difficulties that being an animal poses for us morally, psychologically and so forth, one of the ways that perhaps, uh, which has perhaps now become the dominant way that we resolve that is by telling ourselves a story that reassures and justifies. So human exceptionalism, so this idea that there is something about being human, more than just the things that are exceptional about us, because we are absolutely, in lots of different ways, a really exceptional organism. We have a remarkable kind of sociality and cognition. We have particular, really highly developed ways of having cultures and having cultural information. And we are a lone animal. We have no other species in the homo lineage. So there's lots that is exceptional about us, and I don't deny that. But it's the idea that being exceptional, that there's some sort of essence to being human that justifies everything that we do, and that only we, we're sort of on one line of, of value, on one side of it, we're the thing with ultimate intrinsic value and everything else on in in the living world is on the other side of that border um so that idea is incredibly reassuring for us and it's had lots of different forms and incarnations through history uh, but this sort of basic idea that we are this exceptional creation and that justifies everything that we can and do you know act on in the world is is a problematic idea but it buffers us from from a lot of that we find difficult about being an animal but there is another sort of story within within the book which is um more about ideas that we sort of spiritual ideas that we've had about ourselves this idea that there is a non-animal part of us that there is this spiritual component to us that is that means that somehow we can evade death or that some part of us will survive death that we actually find in all societies around the world and it that can take lots of different forms from again a very human exceptionalist form so the idea that only human beings have a soul and all other life forms don't or the idea that perhaps is more present in indigenous worldviews where all of life is full of this, you know, the world is sort of fecund with soul, if you like, and, and we're all united and connected in this kind of way. But either way, there's this idea that there's a body and soul dualism. And I sort of look at that as another kind of way that, that we have historically and continue to, to buffer us ourselves from what we find frightening about being an animal. And so you're, you're essentially looking at, at consciousness itself and trying to disentangle that from from the stories we tell about what makes us different. And so I'm really curious as you as you develop this thesis, like what brought you to this notion that 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 our entire approach to to how we see ourselves in nature is sort of fundamentally flawed and needs to be addressed? Like what what sort of twigged you to the idea that this is something you needed to study, to look into, to kind of <laughs> dig deep into? Sure. I mean my my background was actually literature many years ago now. Um, so I came out of the creative arts, if you like. 
And but very early on, I went into, I think, what we could broadly call environmental history. So looking at the idea of nature through time or or the way that we've related and this sort of environmental and industrial history of of our relationship to the vessel, the living world. That was what I sort of really worked on for a long time. And as part of that, I particularly looked at extinctions and lots of kinds of extinctions. So sort of cultural extinctions, as well as um, extinctions in the sort of biological sense of a species or uh, um, disappearing forever and Mm. sorry i banged then do you want me to just say that again um a a species disappearing forever and so part of that you know which here we are kind of 15 plus years later and extinction is sort of everywhere in in the public consciousness now where where it wasn't really one of to my great relief, at least, you know, it, it, it is part of how we're all trying to make sense of the kind of being that we are and what we're doing to the rest of life on, on the planet. So there was always in my work a kind of question about the history of how we'd sort of become the animal at the heart of the Anthropocene, but also questions about how we justify what we do so moral questions philosophical questions about how we come to to exercise our moral agency if you like how we come to decide what it's right or wrong to do in the world and what sort of relationship we ought to have and it was really in those sorts of explorations that what came across over you know in my research what just cropped up over and over again was the oddness of how we think about being alive ourselves, the oddness of our self-definition as a species. And, and, you know, what are the hurdles to being able to face down the reality of being mortal, for instance? You know, what is it that we're chasing after? What is, what, what's motivating our dreams? What's motivating the idea of human progress? It was really that, that sort of territory that I was swirling around in. And that was where actually this very simple idea distilled, which is we are an animal, we are an organism. I say we're an animal, you know, we, we're, we're related to all life on Earth, but we're very specifically an animal. We're a kind of walking, thinking creature. We have so much more in common with, despite all of this work being done now on sort of plant sentience and so forth, we, we have really a lot more in common with the dogs that we might be living with or all the, you know, a bird flying in the sky than we do with a plant. We're very, anim- you know, very much an animal. And it really matters to everything about our sensual and perceptual and conscious lives. And and I, so that was really the fact that it matters to us is like really basic, isn't it? It's a really straightforward idea, yeah. but also the idea that it is precisely that very condition when you become so aware of it as we are, that creates lots of psychological problems for us. And it was that unique psychology, you know, and I, I talk about we a lot here and I've had, a, I've had pushback from people and I do absolutely understand that saying, well, you, you can't talk about you know people are very uncomfortable about collective grand statements you know um about us when there's so much variation across human beings and across human societies and that's absolutely true and i do keep that diversity in mind that said we have so much more in common than separates us and i think there are fundamental things like 
our awareness of death and our fear of death, even if we have lots of different ways of responding to that and lots of different um, cultural ways of responding to that, that is still very core to all of us and that we can relate to in all of us. So, you know, it's a complex we, it's a very sort of inclusive we, um, but one that, that admits, you know, the variation of, of, of human beings and, and humans through time as well. Right. And one of the, it seems that one of the central tenets of, of, of science that I grew up hearing is that we've got to be very careful not to anthropomorphize, not to assume that, um, you know, that, that if we see two animals cuddling, that, that they're feeling love for each other, or that if, if things behave in a way that seems like we behave, we need to be very, very careful not to ascribe it, um, um, the qualities that, that we consider to be human. You're kind of suggesting the exact opposite. And that seems to mm-hmm. be a trend that is increasing um, in, in science these days. And how, is that all coming from, you know, as you, you mentioned, the, the, the fascinating work being done in, in terms of um, sort of the, the wood wide web and networks <laughs> of fungal uh, information passing between trees. It, it is, are, are we sort of getting to the point where that boundary between um, what we think of as kind of human biology and, and, and ecology and all of these things, we're, we're having to reassess that? Do you see that as a, a larger trend in science right now? There's a few things to unpack there, isn't there? I mean, actually, this is the work that I'm doing now. Um, my, my next book is, is going to be all about um, these different worlds of being. And I've been working on sort of com- comparative cognition stuff for, for, for a really long time now. So I love all of this stuff. And it's all very interesting. And I try to stay up with the latest science. And obviously, my background is more in the in terms of also looking at the history of science and, and the philosophic philosophy of mind behind all of mm. this so how we thought about mind and definition does matter so it does it is very useful to have that humanities background here because oftentimes and, and let's look at the kind of the example that you've given in terms of um mycorrhizal networks for instance or you know fungi and plants um trees for instance as an example now there is, to me, this is still very young science mm-hmm. and it's extremely exciting. And, you know, there is, it, it makes absolute sense to me that the transfer of information, survival information, energy of um, uh, organisms having, you know, plants included, having agency, having, you know, reasons to do certain things and acting in certain ways and having adapt adapted lots of kinds of exchange mechanisms is absolutely to me to be expected and it's very exciting to see plant scientists for instance coming forward with with trying to fill all of that in and we don't see see it all in this very kind of simplistic scientific way we're starting to ask much more nuanced and you know dynamic questions about the ways that non-animal organisms solve problems and flourish and cooperate you know in the world that said definitions become really important here you know what are we really talking about so I use the word cooperation there for instance and we have to be clear about what we are defining cooperation as because I do think that animals are doing very different things in their kind of dynamic world to plants and fungi and and for instance when we would be looking at ethics it would be very very different that you know very different things would follow from that because 
animals have nervous systems and, and brains and a really complex array of decision-making possibilities for them because they are moving in the world and they have a lot of different it's just incredibly dynamic what they have to deal with both in inside their species and between species in terms of predator prey and of course we see those sorts of things in the plant world but I think to, to make it where we trip up so often when we're looking at all of this is when we're not never quite sure what we're meaning by these terms. What do we mean by sentience exactly? Mm-hmm. What do we mean by consciousness? What do we mean? You know, and that's where we can mm-hmm. get. I think we 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 should stay open minded and explore as much as possible. We should also be very clear about defining our terms and not over sort of stating from the data. And I think. At the moment, in terms, but to answer to your anthropomorphizing, it seems to me that what we all do in inferring mind, in assuming there's another agent that we're interacting with who has motivations, who has intentions, who is is a thinking, feeling being, we're always anthropomorphizing one another. That is actually mm-hmm. what we do, um, and oftentimes when we're interacting with other species the same trick that we use with one another eye contact observing sort of cues from behavior to judge or what is it that this organism wants you know listening to vocalizations looking at expressions oh that that or you know that other being is in pain that other being is experiencing pleasure that other being wants that thing in the room that i want in the room we're really good at, at, at in a split second knowing what our dog wants or what mm-hmm. the you know if we're a farmer what's going on with that cow in the herd yeah that that they're not very well today you know i'm we we get it in a second there's very little rational thought going on there's no high order kind of reasoning happening we can see it just with cues behaviors expressions vocalizations we already know all of these other species and beings have very similar kinds. So, you know, it, to me, it's a madness that we've gone so long being frightened of inferring affective and mental states in other mm-hmm. organisms when it's blindingly obvious that they they do have complex worlds of beings, you know? So that is a separate problem. I think really we've nothing to fear there. And I think we'll be on the right side of history in in. in assuming that other other animals have very complex feelings thoughts needs intentions when it comes mm-hmm. to plants i think it's, it's something different we're looking at we're not looking at the same kind of sensory and perceptual world as as an animal has that doesn't mean it's of less value it's incredibly valuable mm-hmm. and and dynamic and exciting but it's a different is a different path that they've gone down, and I don't think we should be trying to anthropomorphize plants too much. That's where I would definitely say initially I don't see anything in the data that is exactly analogous to what human you know humans and other animals go through, but mm. something equally you know extraordinary and and fascinating happening um, and intelligent certainly. Right. Right. I guess I'm also, you know, we're talking about definitionally what what is what does it mean to be an animal. One of the things that 
that you touch on too is I guess how complex our systems are in the sense that we're not just a, a brain that could be uploaded. Our moods are governed by gut biomes. I mean, it, I guess one of the things that I find so fascinating is our animal nature seems to be almost more of ecology than biology in some ways. I mean, there are worlds within worlds within worlds when you start to think about how complex um, uh, our being here is. I'm just wondering if you can talk about a little bit about that interconnectedness I guess that that we see when we start to think about ourselves as biological creatures, as as of this place and not um, separate from this place, whether whether we use a soul or a mind to define our otherness um, doesn't seem to matter to you. It's just the, the so so. What does it mean to to really understand this the kind of messy, complex um, physicality of consciousness for you? Why is that important? Sure. So I talked a little bit at the beginning about this human. Sorry, this uh, body-soul duality. Mm -hmm. So this, um, some of that has followed from the extraordinary nature of our consciousness. So it really does feel as though there's this kind of body wandering about that's carrying the me inside us like a little candle. Um, And so you can understand just from your own point of view how we have ended up really for a very long time, for thousands of years, telling ourselves this story that there is some sort of separate, essential thinking thing, and then there's the body. As time has gone on, particularly thanks to neurobiology and neurochemistry, more than just neuroscience, you know, that have really started to drill down into all of the aspects of our physicality and our relationship to one another and to the environment that kind of all together are rallied to generate consciousness. Now, I'm not saying consciousness isn't a, a largely a brain event. It is. But it's also, it's, it's also deeply embodied. You know, it's, it's also um, drawing on all of these thoughts. It's not a single event happening just in the mind. You know, it's it's all of the bodies implicated in different ways. Okay, you could probably cut a digit off of your hand and your consciousness isn't going to be radically altered in the way that if I was to cut my head off, it would be. (laughs) But, you know, even so, once you start really messing up with your body and taking whole organs out, and as you were pointing out, starting to mess up, you know, your, your whole digestive system, actually then you will find shifts in your experience in what it's like your, your perception in your reality and your self-identity and so forth you know we we and we're deeply affected by time of day our circadian rhythms all mm-hmm. of these sorts of things you know our minds and our bodies are all you know are all desperately entangled and entangled with their environment so what one of part of the work is 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 trying to get us away from this dualism that crops up over and over again. And it's cropped up again in the 21st century in this kind of transhumanist movement. So this idea Mm -hmm. that we're going to be able to download our brains and live forever, that we can just live this permanent sort of algorithmic existence and that that would be somehow, you know, almost inseparable from from a biological and it gets rid of that messy biology business that's going to die and going to get old and what have you so it has an appeal as an idea but I try to myth bust that a little bit and and mess around with it and criticize you know be a little bit critical about that or problematize it let's say but 
but you know, well, I think can we that, maybe talk just a, you know dive into sure. that just a tiny bit because I think it <laughs> sure. is a great you know, um, you know the idea is that that um, evolution has been. I mean, some people would would suggest uh, um, sort of the posthumanists that evolution is is been the path for us to basically leave the body, leave this physical sure. coil. And what's problematic about that for you? What is it that you think you know would be uh, lost in the notion of if we would somehow make a perfect Xerox uh, uh, or copy, I guess I'm dating myself saying Xerox, a copy of the brain, a scan of the Love brain. Um, facts. <laughs> <laughs> facts, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so it's, but what, what VHS, would be the... VHS, beta yeah, version. Yeah, VHS copy of my brain, <laughs> slap it in there in the Super 8 player. Why wouldn't that work? Why would that not be me? Why? What would I lose with that? Like, how would I not be me? Or how would you not be you if, if we just sucked your brain right out and digitized it and put you in a machine? Sure. So it's it, it's there's lots of kind of really thorny stuff here, and some of it is to some people like the most fascinating stuff in the world, and to others like completely <laughs> mind numbing. So you know the idea of you know this is a real argument within philosophy of mind about whether you can duplicate and whether that duplication would be the same or is going to be you, you know. Mm. I find all of that joyful and fascinating, really in a very human way. And I'm a complete sci-fi geek, so I love all of that in, in that <laughs> sort of space. Mm. But what I always ground back into is, you need know, to a certain extent, there's an absurdity to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can get semantic about it and you can play with it philosophically. But really, we know that you couldn't, you could do, I can imagine we could pull out aspects of memory you know we could we could take traces we could we could pull parts of what it is to um be a human cognizer if you like and put it into some synthetic form and i also think it's very possible we could have some fascinating uh, working synthetic form of consciousness that could emerge in these in these sort of um, AI or in a really high level sort of robotics that that would push at our nice, hum, you know, comfortable human exceptionalist ideas about consciousness and be a different kind of consciousness and push it our and, you know, make our definitions a little bit blurry and uncomfortable. I, I can go with all of that. But would, could you just download me um, you know, and that means, for instance, so I'm holding up my, you can't see this because, of course, this is a podcast, but I'm holding up my two hands at the moment. Earlier today, I was holding my seven-year-old son who'd hurt himself and I was stroking his back and I was touching him. I was smelling him as I kissed his head and, and soothed him as, as mums and dads the world over do, and grandpas and so forth, you know, and could you you will that is that is physical there's no rational stuff going on the traces of that are not just going to be in the electrical sort of stuff going on in my brain the traces of that are in my hands they're in the kind of um you know they're in my endocrine system they're in 
all of the complexity that I'm drawing on that's deeply embodied there in my olfactory system, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm inhaling him and then that's doing stuff in my brain, you are not going to be able to carry that over in, in, in certainly not in today's technology and not in tomorrow's world. I mean, in, in two million years, off. who knows? But, you right. know, right now right. it's pie in the sky chat. And it's a problem if if you forget what is beautiful for the for the real motivation that you don't want to die that let's be mm. frank about it that's where it's coming from you are not willing to accept a finite life you are willing to sacrifice the beauty of that kind of physical intimacy and right. and, and i just think we're on a hiding to nothing with that well we think of just even during this this the the pandemic the last two years the the damage that we're seeing that we've done by not being able to touch each other, by not mm -hmm. being with each other, by, I mean, the, the, you know, talking to a relative um, who hasn't been hugged in over a year and the horror of that. Yeah. I mean, and it's to so not interesting. hold we, someone's hand when they're dying. That's it. That's it. And it's funny because when you, you talk about, you know, holding, uh, being a parent, holding your child, smelling the head. I, there's a whole suite of physiological reactions that are happening in me as you describe that. There's, tingle, <laughs> there's an entire reality there. And I wonder, I mean, so, and that reality really is what you're talking about that connects us, right, to our, an, that's that's my animal nature. I mean, we, we would, uh, a dog would do that, a cat would do that, even insects would do that, right? Would have that same sure. sense of love and, and need to be touched, need to be <clears throat> held. Yeah, he, Life on this just extraordinary planet is, and our planet is finite, and we mustn't, you know, be frightened or, or think that because we can't see this going on into the eternity of the universe, that somehow it degrades the meaning and beauty of the moment now. It doesn't in any way, you know, and I, that's always something that I think people get, you know, you know we fear it is right. that somehow the meaning of our lives will be destroyed by, by the finiteness of existence. But I think, you know, what, what matters to us is on a much more local scale than that, a much more intimate scale. And when you bring it back down to that level and you forget the kind of cosmic level, when you ground it back down, you know, it is just we look around us and we see how much life is trying its darndest to continue and not just continue, in, you know, in this ruthless sort of um, survival of the fittest way, but continue through interrelatedness. So, you know, once you get life and you get a diversity of life, you get lots of these different kinds of, beings and minds that are all inter interrelating and you know a sort of chaos unfolds that is is so dynamic it cannot be just it can't be simplified or categorized but what we can see is all of the different remarkable relationships that form and unexpected kinds of relationships and ways that we don't just in a really crude sense solve problems in the world but that we generate these unexpected beauties and that could be you know that a 
for us that a bee sort of buzzes past our ear and the sound is beautiful to us. And what a strange thing that is, if you stop and think about it. It could be that you see, you know, and I write about this in the book, a fox sat down lifting its face to the sun. You know, these, these are strange, beautiful little relationships and moments that emerge as, as organisms interact with one another and interact with the world that they found themselves in. And yeah, you know, that is, that, that is the business of life as it has emerged in this extraordinary way on our planet. And it is very precious. It's also messy. There are wasps parasitizing other animals there are viruses to the you know power of a however many in the ocean you know and sometimes they get into our bodies and they do horrible things there's all you know nature out there in the living world is a messy system and it has some unpleasant parts to it it's it's you know we have to accept that that's baked in but not lose sight of how and, and it is the wild chaos of it that is it, that is so remarkable, really. Um, human beings don't sometimes don't like that and try to to impose some control and order back on it and engineer the heck out of it. But it is actually, if you kind of really think about the rules of the game, you have to have that real messy sort of. Um, flurry of intentions to, well, to that's how it has to be really right but if that makes me uncomfortable if i'm saying ah that's a bit much i would like to live uh you know as if there was a, a you know a real simple order what is it what is the what's the danger in that what what what's wrong with just letting people sort of feel that that we are humans this is our world we are superior we're going to move through it what what's the cost of that mentality i guess well i what I try to look at in the book is is why this re-engaging with this, because I'm hardly the first person to point out that we have <laughs> difficulties facing death or that mm-hmm. we there are you know complex things that follow from being an animal. I mean you that's there two thousand years ago in, in ancient Greece. So <laughs> but why it matters now is for several reasons. The first is is what we as an organism are doing to the rest of life on earth. So it's absolutely not in question anymore that we we are the meteor of this age, that we are having a colossal impact on life. And some of that is incidentally good for some organisms, but taken as a whole, we are causing huge levels of extinctions. Some species are just not flourishing and many are in thrall to us so you know the world's commonest bird is the chicken and a lot of chickens are living really really miserable lives because you know we're predating them essentially at at a kind of industrial scale so things are out of whack and I don't think there's pretty much anyone alive today who would deny that you know, it's not a simple narrative, but it's absolutely happening. And we need to make sense of what that means, because we have that kind of mind, we have that kind of cognitive power, therefore, the pressure's on us, if you like, to, to look at that and to make sense of it and consider whether that 
makes us a good animal you know what kind of creature does that make us and what kind of legacy do we want do we want that to be our legacy lots of chicken bones in the ground and not much of anything else you know so so that there's that moment and the reality is to really make sense of how life matters you know meanwhile we've got the existential crises of kind of overexploiting our environment, of degrading it and polluting it, of climate change and so forth. And you've got this kind of survival narrative that we could somehow hop over, you know, into Mars and sort of get out of this, um, our fight, the fight, you know, the buffers that we're coming up against. You know, but even if you were doing that, you'd be taking organisms from this planet. There's a hell of a lot of ethical kind of conundrums to get over there. You've got to make. And what are we chasing? What how does life matter? And these are value questions and we have to think critically about them. So in order to think critically about it, if you are simply telling yourself, well, only we matter and nothing else does, you can see why it appeals, but it makes it very difficult for us to be to, to get ourselves into the situation where we might rethink what we're doing you know we're going we're just going to charge off there and do what the hell we like and i think for most people actually for most reasoning people that you know i firmly believe wouldn't be comfortable with that morally and ethically so we have to read that problematizes the human exceptionalist idea mm-hmm. and that's where we can see one of one of its difficulties <clears throat> But I think, you know, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, go, go, go. But, you know, another thing that I was going to say is that we've also got this, we are at a massive tipping point in terms of biotechnology. Now, I work within bioethics and, you know, (coughs) excuse me, we have at our disposal now CRISPR genomics technologies where we can engineer what it is. We we can become the intelligent creator, if you like. And before we go down that path, we really need to make sense of, you know, how it matters to be biological, how it matters to be alive, what matters. And that those questions are absolutely not answered and they're certainly not being discussed in any with any kind of equality across society at the moment. So I think we're in a very tricky time, you know, in terms of thinking about what it means to be an animal. And that, that's why I think it really matters now. Right. And I guess, you, you know, as you're talking about the ethics of, of what this understanding would change, I, I suppose that also speaks to reasons why we would, as a society, be pushing back against what you're suggesting, because um, it's hard to imagine if we are animals and we are part of a, a, an ecosystem um, and we share a, 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 at least the basics of consciousness with our with our animal kin, factory farming becomes indefensible. Um, destruction of, you know, clear cutting like we're doing in British Columbia here in Canada, yeah. old growth forest. It's like it's insane. Mm. So I, I guess, I mean, really, the, the interesting thing is you're fighting is is what you're talking about compatible in any way with the world we're living in now or or does this 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 simple this simple like seemingly simple thing that you're suggesting that we need to re uh refocus uh i guess our attention in terms of when we think of what it means to be alive what what is that uh, away from a, an exceptionalist notion and into a kind of a more organic notion of it um what does that change about how we how we live in society what does that i mean is 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 it possible to just keep going on the way we are? 
No, I mean, I think we all know that something's got to give at this stage. I think every, everybody knows that now. Um, you know, when you look across history, I understand why people find it very, very threatening to consider giving other species the intrinsic value that they might be owed or even just paying attention to them, listening to them, caring about them ethically, about what they do and don't want. And that might, as you say, make factory farming impossible. And we might have lots of reasons why we might move away from that uh, in, you know, in the future. But the idea that it would be impossible to do that or that that's some sort of naivety just is not borne out by history. Now, yes, we have very, very large numbers. But, you know, the human population is huge at the moment compared to where we were at even a couple of hundred years ago. You know, post-industrialization, post the first industrial revolution, you've got a huge explosion in, in human population. So we've got a lot of people that we need to feed and we need to support to flourish. You know, those in in lots of nations, the we've started to get declining populations, but there's a great then a kind of great fear because of the way that our economic systems now mm-hmm. work that, that this is going to create an aging population. We won't have our workers, our economic systems will fail. These are real problems and they are incredibly thorny and very difficult to to figure out and a complete political nightmare uh, for for those in governance. Having said that, when you look back to the Roman Empire, for instance, you know, which was really powered by slavery, that you can move, you know, might have seemed impossible and ridiculously naive to many of those in power at the time that you could consider thinking about other people as of equal value, that it was a, you know, a a moral horror to be enslaving people in that kind of way and and ordering the economics um, and the flourishing of a few in that in you know in society in that way and yet we did move beyond it you know yes it, it reared its head again several hundred years later but we then moved beyond it again and, and people had to retrain and systems had to adapt and, and incomes had to adapt because we recognized it was not right and it was built on false and incredibly dangerous ideas that that Mm -hmm. were causing many people to suffer. That we might have to rethink our economic systems, retrain people, support people, you know, to shift into different livelihoods because we recognise there's a moral horror in terms of how we're treating other living beings on the planet isn't to be feared. It just needs to be done in a very sensitive way. You know, and you can, one of the joys about the way that culture works is that while the old activity of a culture can come to an end, so I'm thinking of cowboys, let's say, who, yeah, you still get some droving, but a lot of that is is done and 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 most people who are doing that have maybe got a helicopter in the air you know they're not (laughs) you know they're not the cowboys of old Mm -hmm. um because you know or or in the uk i might think of the canal ways you know and the barges 
And that was a real way of life for lots of people. But that came to an end because the railways came and that passed away. But you still get the canal barges with their beautiful kind of traditional paintwork associated with them. But now they're holiday houses. And cultures do that. They do that all the time. They retain the things, the memories that they love of the old ways of life. Uh, and accept it as part of their history but they recognize that for a range of different reasons and some of those may be moral reasons that old way of life has come to an end and I think we we shouldn't feel frightened by confronting our relationship to other species and thinking you know what we we need to move on from some of these ways that we are treating other species and that will mean that certain ways of life uh, and cultures will come to an end, but we'll retain the memory of those old life ways, but, but we'll accept that we've made a positive moral movement forward. So I, I don't think we should fear it as much as we do. That's fantastic. What a, what a, what a beautiful concept. And, I, and as we begin to accept the notion of our connection to other living beings, it also, I guess, it becomes impossible to maintain the illusion that somehow we are different depending on what nation state we're in, that there is some fundamental difference between you being, uh, you know, in, in England and me being in North America and what, you know, the, the, the notion of borders separating us. This is really becomes very, very difficult when, when you start to, to expand your empathy to include a housefly and a mosquito <laughs> and other beings. And it becomes very difficult to, to treat your neighbor poorly, doesn't it? Absolutely. And again, you know, science kind of backs you up on this one in some really sort of heartwarming ways. We're not taking anything away from our love for one another when we extend that love to other species. You you mentioned the forest in Canada. I've actually just read Susan Simard's book, which oh, is yeah. a b- beautiful book. And, wow. yeah. and really powerful example of bringing you know the uh, the data to bear on on an old prejudice about how forests actually work and how these ecosystems actually work and inculcating respect into industrial practice which is absolutely fantastic and i you know you don't what she's kind of saying in that in in her book is that you know, treat these forests and these plants with respect, recognize how they are interrelating and what they need, and they and we will flourish together. And I think it's very similar in terms of our morality. I, I've had so many people, particularly people of faith, and, and you know, I'm, I, I'm not of any particular faith, but I'm not some sort of raging atheist either, and, and I'm very, very you know, respectful to people of all kinds of spiritualities. I actually don't think a lot of what I'm talking about necessarily threatens one's belief in God, for instance. But it, it complicates certain aspects of the texts, but not necessarily your your belief in, in spirituality and, and in God. But there has been people who've come to me and said, you know, but but if we saw other species in this way, you know, that somehow this is... Um, you're taking away from how remarkable human beings are and the value of a human life. And I think that's absolutely wrong-headed. 
we don't do our empathy and our compassion just in our concepts. It's not an abstract thing. It's a lived reality. It's a physical practice, how we love and and, and, and experience compassion. And actually, the more compassion you generate for other species, as you say, the more it tends to make you a more compassionate person in all kinds of ways. It, it doesn't take from your love of other people. It, it's much more likely to engender a recognition of, of the beauty of all human beings on earth and the equal value of all people on earth, whether they come in whatever sort of shape, size, skin color, culture, background, whatever. Um, because you're 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 basically tricking your brain into being and body into being in an affiliative state in a cooperative loving affiliative state and it it, it really do, it's it's not going to take anything away it's only going to add oh yeah well what a perfect uh place to conclude our conversation with with uh, a hope for a more um uh, more connection between us and and our neighbors and and our on our planet and i want to thank you for this this gorgeous book, A Wonderful Meditation. No, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. That was my conversation with Melanie Challenger. Her latest publication, How to Be Animal, is available from fine independent booksellers the world over, including perfect books on Elgin Street. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without you. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.